0: Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I am your host, Joshua Johnson. You could go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact or donate. If you're enjoying this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Uh, It would be really helpful. Or you could just go and just tell somebody about this podcast and tell them you're enjoying it. You love uh, listening to Joshua interview a bunch of different people. So, uh, yeah, go. Tell people about this podcast. Get the word out so that more people can enjoy it. Uh, in this episode, we have a special guest. Ted Esler is the president of Missio Nexus. And he uh, just has a new book coming out today, August 3rd, when this podcast drops. Um, the book is called The Innovation Crisis. Why does the church... And mission agencies and ministries not have innovation at its core. Are they innovating? Are they not innovating? We get to the bottom of it here in this podcast and why there is an innovation crisis at hand. It's a really good one. I know you're going to enjoy it. I know that you're going to enjoy uh, what Ted has to say. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Here's Ted Esler. Ted Esler, thank you for joining us on the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Uh, so thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah, it. It's good. I uh, As I, I look through uh, your bio, your journey, um, what made you get from the computer industry into missions um, and why missions?
1: Well, I think, you know, for me, it was an old timey missionary. Yeah. I heard speak at a church on a Sunday morning. My wife mm. and I were a little bit shocked that there were missionaries in the world because I didn't grow up in a missions uh, family or anything like yeah. that. And um, I went and talked to a mission pastor about, you know, what would it take to learn more? He says, you should take the perspectives course. <laughs> and uh, I'm from Minneapolis. And in Minneapolis back in 1988, you took the perspectives course the first session was taught by an unknown baptist pastor named john piper <laughs> and wow. uh, of course that's the story of his glory on night one yep. and after that night we were hooked and mm. uh, we started moving in that direction right then and there
0: wow uh that's yeah pretty amazing i think perspectives has done a lot for a lot of people and mobilized a ton of people into missions probably half the at least Half, maybe three quarters of the missionaries that we have at All Nations come through Perspectives. Um, and uh, so it is a, I a mean, great mobilization tool all the way back in 88 and even today. Uh, that's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, I'm a big believer. Definitely. Uh, it has impacted thousands and thousands of people. And uh, if you don't have one going on in your city, you need to start one.
0: Yes, I agree. So find those perspectives classes where they, uh, where they are. And uh, if you can join in on one, that would be amazing. You went to Bosnia. Um, Was that something of your choice? Was God putting that Bosnia on your heart? Were you assigned Bosnia? How did you get there? Well, our
1: church had a in-house missionary training uh, Mm -hmm. approach. And uh, part of that included time in uh, Belize in a Mayan village up in the mountains. Mm. And during wow. that time, um, we realized that we were urbanites, that we weren't <laughs> supposed, to live, supposed to live in the jungle. And so um, we started talking with our agency. At the time, it was Pioneers. Uh-huh. What are options out there that we could look at that would be urban? And uh, they were thinking, you know, the biggest uh, city by population of Mm. Muslim background people is Sarajevo. And so we started Mm. heading towards Sarajevo, Yugoslavia. Now, between when we decided to go there and when we showed up, the civil war had started. Mm. And uh, Yugoslavia, of course, was just rent apart into many different countries. But we, we drove into Croatia with UN vehicles, it was when the UN was deploying to Croatia hmm. and we lived in Zagreb for a few years and uh, learned some language, got involved with some local ministries there. Wow, built a team. And when the Dayton Peace Accords were signed in 1996, we moved from Zagreb down into Sarajevo. and uh, you know it was a it was a very uh, crucial time in the history of that newly forming nation yeah that uh, we were very blessed to be there.
0: Yeah. What did you learn uh, working with people in crisis um, coming from the States and then being dropped in? I mean, with UN vehicles from the beginning.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I would just say um, the people that are caught up in that situation for them, that's daily life, that's day-to-day living. Yeah. Um, Now, when the war started there, um, a lot of people did not have any expectation that Yugoslavia, which was, you know, in the Eastern Bloc nations, Yugoslavia was probably the most prosperous of all those Mm -hmm. nations. Yeah. And when the war started, um, I think people were shocked by what happened in their own culture. Mm. And I, you know, I heard over and over how people did not expect the situation to change so rapidly and so fast.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but, you know, working with hurting people, I would say, boy, I had a, <laughs> there's so many lessons I could give you. But probably number one is, as an outsider, you know, I haven't lived what they've lived, yep, and suffered as they suffered, and I gotta really work hard at not presuming that I can really understand it. Mm. And it puts the onus on uh, a person that's from the outside <clears throat> to really strive for empathy. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, you, you do begin to take on the pain, the attitudes of the people that you're living with. Uh, when we were in Croatia, we were exposed to the Croatian perspective, mm-hmm. not the Serbian perspective. And of course yeah. there was war there. And then when we moved into Bosnia, similarly, you begin to take on the perspective of the people that you're living right. and working among. And so we really saw things through the eyes of the Muslims. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and that's that's a very good thing that you're seeing it through their eyes. Uh, At the same time, war, that situation was very complicated. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wouldn't say they were like abjectly good guys and abjectly bad guys. Yeah. uh, On a nation state basis. But certainly in the mix, there was uh, evil being perpetrated at the hands of people. Uh, Mm. So, yeah, it was. Tough time to be a Bosnian or a Croatian or a Serb or a Kosovar or whatever you were. Yeah. But if you were there with the love of Christ, uh, it was actually a very uh, good time to be there.
0: Yeah. uh, You know, in the last, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, I read Miroslav Volf's book, Exclusion and Embrace. And, you know, he comes from Yugoslavia. And as he's talking about really breaking the cycle of, the cycle of war and pain that we start to inflict on one another, that we actually have to look and see one another. We have to give space for the other. Um, and, you know, especially in a in a war and a place where, you know, there's no abject good guys or abject bad guys, and there's all sorts of things taking place. There could be people blaming others on every side. Um, but have you, did you find any place that you could hold in the middle where you can make room for, for the other in the midst of that place that people can actually communicate?
1: Well, I mean, I would say yes to that question. I think the story of the small evangelical churches um, in Bosnia particularly kind of bear that out. Uh, we had Serbs, Croats and Muslim background people. Yeah. all worshiping Jesus and uh, enjoying each other's fellowship. Let me, let's tell you one quick story as an example. Yeah. After we'd been in Bosnia for a couple of years, there was a war in Kosovo and a lot of Kosovars came up to Sarajevo, a city already completely devastated by war, no real infrastructure for handling refugees in come mm. these Kosovars. And uh, one day I'm driving around with one of my, uh, Sarajevan friends and we go by a group of Kosovar refugees shuffling along the side of the road and I said to him I said you know we really need to reach out and show Christ's love to those people maybe we need to do something with humanitarian aid I don't know what but we should be doing it and he turned to me and he just said Ted you don't realize how filthy those people are and what Mm. dogs they are and he had nothing but terrible things to say about them um, and so we did do an outreach to them, but it was mostly the foreign missionaries that were engaged in that mm. initially. Well, while that was all going on, one of my fellow co-workers, uh, he had the opportunity through sports ministry to lead two young men to Christ from a uh, Kosovar background. In fact, their father was the Muslim leader, the imam, in their village in Kosovo, mm. and they're brand-new believers, and they are so filled with the Holy Spirit. It was so fun to be around them because their joy was so uh, just concrete yeah. and real. And then one day they said, hey, we'd like to come to church. And our church is full of Serbians, and I know what the attitude is toward mm-hmm. these uh, Kosovars. And uh, I said, well, I don't know if we should do that or not. And they were really insistent. And so mm. there they were one day coming down the front. Front, front, coming down the aisle to sit in the front row at our little church service and the room kind of fell silent and people did not really wow get excited about them being there yeah. well halfway through the service we would pause and it was open time to share prayer requests and these two guys they didn't have the protocol down on you know sitting there and waiting quietly so they <laughs> one of them immediately pops up he says hey and he turns around he looks at the whole room he says hey i just want you to know how the Holy Spirit has filled my heart with love for you. Mm. And, I mean, he went on and on and on about his transformed life. And I looked back in the room, and there was that same guy I'd been in the car with, and he's looking at me with a smile on his face and, giving, you know, kind of putting his finger at me and nodding it like, yeah, this is the power of Christ, isn't it? And so wow. Christ breaks through, even in those very tough, tough situations.
0: Yeah, that's so amazing. And, you know, to be able to follow Christ in the midst of, of those things, you know, as you you were working with with Muslims in, in Bosnia, um, I was also on the front lines and but in the Middle East working with uh, Syrian Muslims, um, sitting in refugee homes uh, and shepherding people towards Christ. Uh, but I think you know you were were then pulled away and said you have some some leadership that you're working in a a support role. Um, I'm doing the same thing uh leading all nations Kansas City working in a support role sending and training missionaries and coaching them now um what was that transition like uh for you um and what are the things that what helped you in that role that you learned on the field on the front lines
1: sure well i would say so i we came back from bosnia not directly to the United States but we spent three years in Canada where mm. i led the pioneers canadian office that was probably a good landing place for us uh kind of a gentle transition back yeah and then i moved down into the u.s office um, and took on kind of an executive leadership role on the team there I, i would say so one thing about missionaries that i believe is true is missionaries tend to have an insider outsider view of their own work yeah in other words, if you haven't lived where I've lived, learned the language I've learned, you're never going to really understand what it's like. Yep. And to be in missions leadership, it's really helpful to have spent some time in a field missionary role. Yep. It's not an absolute requirement, but it really does change the dynamic of whether or not people are going to accept you, listen to what your ideas might be about, et cetera. And so I think I did learn that, you know, the experience that we had on the field gave us credibility and uh, it kind of gives you the right to speak into the broader missions picture.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's definitely helpful. And, you know, in my case is people are coming through They you know, as we have experience on the front lines, they're going to be able to to listen on a deeper level. Um, And I think that, you know, they're able to to go into a space. Um, you know, you have a, a a new book out called "The Innovation Crisis," uh, that's just coming out now. But I think you know, as missionaries, when we're we're moving to a new place, um, and especially pioneering roles, and you know, a lot of missionaries are pioneering work. Uh, it requires a ton of innovation, a ton of change. And I think there's a there's some sort of a respect that happens if somebody has already been there on the front lines, and they're you're able to speak into this this innovation space and this new space in a way that others cannot. Um, so it's been helpful in my case. Um, have you been able to to speak into uh, the lives of, of missionaries? I know you do a lot of speaking in the lives of mission leaders at the moment, uh, and talking through that. What are the types of innovations and changes and things that you have seen throughout your role, your leadership role with Pioneers and in mission Nexus, in the missionary world, in the missions world? Um, and then we'll get into some other things in your book. But what have you seen and the changes you've seen over time. Well,
1: first of all, uh, the title of the book, this is a kind of a pre-release copy. It comes out next week, actually, is The Innovation Crisis. And the yeah. reason why I call it that is because I think in ministry leadership, we do have somewhat of a crisis of innovation right now. And mm-hmm. the way that I tend to highlight this to uh, ministry leaders is I ask them right off the top of my head give me the name of two or three of the most innovative uh, I- entities on the face of the planet today. So let me do it with you, Joshua. Yeah. If I was to say, who are the biggest innovators today? Who comes to mind?
0: Yeah. I mean, I would definitely go with the, with tech companies. I mean, yeah. you're, you're looking at... Yeah, it's always tech companies. It's
1: yeah. Amazon, you know, Facebook, Microsoft, yep. Apple, etc. We We roll those out. And imagine what it would be like if instead... People said, wow, those people that follow Jesus, they are the most innovative people out there. Mm. They will help you by solving your life problems in ways that, we, you know, we could never have conceived of before. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I would say that the, the you know, I do believe missionaries are innovative. Uh, but at the same time, the opportunities for innovation today are so huge. Right. Many of us fall into applying the same Solution sets that others have applied in yep. uh, different, you know, sectors, which is not always a bad thing. But I do think that the, the need for massive innovation in the ministry space is huge right now. Yeah. And uh, so that's my first message to leaders is uh, we need to get very serious about innovation if mm. we're going to move the needle for the kingdom.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I totally agree. What spurred you on uh, to, to write this and write this book?
1: Well, every time I, just about every time innovation comes up with a leader, one yeah. of their first questions, because so, so now I lead this network of mission agencies. So I'm exposed to a lot of different um, agencies. And so they almost always, if we talk about innovation, they're almost always gonna ask me, well, Ted, give me some examples of innovation. And essentially what they're looking for are ideas, perhaps, that they could copy or that they could implement in their own space. And so, you know, even working with my publisher on writing the book, he kept saying to me, Ted, we need some examples. We need more examples. And I kept going back to him and I said, the title is The Innovation Crisis. Don't have examples. That's why I'm writing the book. So I'd say that's the, the primary driver. Now there are examples in the book, so you yeah. can find them in there, but <laughs> good. Um, the, the primary driver for me was, you know, I just, I really believe we need to see an explosion yeah. of innovation Yeah. in, you know, we got to get out of this either or thinking, you know, somebody will come to me and say, you know, we should be sending business people, not traditional missionaries. And my, my first thought is, Why not? Why does that word not come in the middle of those two phrases? Why wouldn't we be doing one and the other at the same time? Exactly. And This kind of both and thinking needs to prevail over this concept that we can either do this or we can do that.
0: And why do you think that the either or uh, thinking is prevailing at the moment?
1: I think part of it is, um, I think there's a frustration that here we stand 2000 years after Christ ascended into the heavens yeah. And yet we still have a huge unfinished task. So I do think there's some frustration about that. Yep. Um, and therefore, you know, people are thinking that we need to throw out what has gone before. Now, again, I'd be really cautious about throwing things out because <laughs> if, if you look at what's happened globally in the world, I mean, over the last 100 years, we have seen a transformation on where the church actually lives on the planet. And missionaries have been yep. a large. Part of why the gospel has grown exponentially outside of Western countries. Yep. Well, here in the West, we struggled somewhat to see the church grow or even maintain the, the territory that it might have had before. And so when I have people from, particularly from the US, come and say, Oh, this whole missionary enterprise has got problems and needs to be reworked, I say, Wait a second. Well, over the last 100 years, we've seen some successes outside of our country, yet here in the U.S., maybe not so much. Yeah. And I think that kind of helps reset that uh, kind of deconstruction of of the the Great Commission idea.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people out there uh, at the moment. They're trying to figure out uh, their place uh, in faith. I think there's been a shaking that's happened uh, in the last year and a half with COVID um, and everything. And I think... One of the ways I see a lot of American Christians, especially start to question uh, their faith or question what is going on in the church. And I think maybe one of the reasons why is the church didn't innovate during COVID. They went from you know a traditional service on a Sunday to in person to a tr- traditional service on a Sunday, live streamed um, yeah. and didn't innovate. Um, you know what? What do you see in the midst of this? Why are some people? Why has there been a shaking? What has the church done in the last year and a half, or not done?
1: Well, I wholeheartedly agree with your assessment that the innovation that we saw was really just to take what was already happening in the church and move it behind a few cameras. Yeah, uh, and many many of the church services that I witnessed online were clones of what was happening in person. Just you know, as if it, the first time that i ever spoke virtually to a missions conference mm. in 1996 i was in my home in sarajevo mm. using skype <laughs> over a dial-up modem <laughs> speaking to a conference in australia okay wow. that was
2: 1996
1: <laughs> wow so the concept of you know putting our services on zoom i'm sorry that just doesn't cut the innovation right. level that we needed to see. Um, you know, what could have happened? I don't know. I think we'll be armchair quarterbacking that for some time to come. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I'm not, I'm not the person sitting here thinking, oh, we should have done this, we should have done this, we should have done that. But I, I, I do think that there is a, there's a yearning out there yep. for entrepreneurial ministry leaders to be doing something that catches the attention of the culture. You know, one thing about, one reason why businesses have been done better in innovation is because their competition is very clear. It's other businesses. Mm.
2: Yeah.
1: And they have an existential threat. If they don't innovate, they're going away.
3: Mm.
1: Well, religious institutions, now whether you're talking about churches or mission agencies or whatever it is, there's some kind of innate staying power that shields them from this existential threat. Although some people yeah. think that might be changing, but additionally, our competition is a bit more ambiguous because we're yeah. competing against culture. Yeah. And with the massive change and the massive shift that we see in culture today, we are we it, it, things are so ripe for innovation mm-hmm. with that kind of change. Um, if we don't get our act together, we're going to start really sensing and feeling that existential threat.
0: Yeah. And we have to be be pretty quick and innovation needs to be fast and quick Uh, just because the culture is changing so fast these days um, that we're not not keeping up with the times. You know, Jesus is good news. He is good news, like no matter what the culture does or how the culture changes, Jesus is good news in the midst of it. And he can actually speak to the times and the culture and the people and the season. Um, but we often take uh, what he has said in the past and said, that worked 30 years ago, so I'm just going to keep saying the same things. And it's not hitting, it's not getting through to the people uh, the same way, because we're not actually letting Jesus speak now.
1: Yeah, you know, you, you think about, G- I, I got a, a bunch of text in the book devoted to the innovation <laughs> of Jesus. mm he was so innovative that at times his own followers would come to him and basically wring their hands and say, why do you got to say this stuff? Uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, you're going to lose your audience. Uh-huh. They're not keeping up. Yep. Um, he was highly, highly innovative. Even the, you know, new commandment, new wines, it goes on and on and on. There's all yeah. sorts of things about Jesus ministry that is new, but you hinted at something that uh, in business they call the innovators dilemma. hmm And the way the innovators dilemma works is when you let's say you start a new business and you come up with this fantastic new widget or service. Yeah. And it gives you success because it gives you uh, the success. You do more of it. Yeah. And you begin to organize around creating that thing that you've done that's made you successful. Hmm. Well, when the environment around you changes, our initial reaction is just to to run a little faster on that same hamster wheel. Yeah. And I think that one thing you see with these innovative tech companies is they realize that just making that wheel turn faster isn't going to always work. I just saw yesterday an advertisement for Apple. Mm-hmm. They're talking about the Apple Watch, and they're talking about in the future, all of your health data will come through the watch that's on your wrist. Yeah. They are moving to medical technology as a future strategy. Uh, for them to innovate on because hmm. the phone industry has become a commodity. Yep. Everybody's doing it. It doesn't have a lot of differentiation version to version to version. Yeah. And they know they got to get off this hamster wheel and start building a new hamster wheel over here. Yeah. Um, unfortunately in the church, and I think your example that you gave of these services going online that were basically the same thing. Yep. Um, we are just on that hamster wheel and we just keep working it faster and faster and harder. And that, that is not innovation.
0: No, it's not. I mean, I remember I woke up right after, you know, in 2020 in March of 2020, when, you know, NBA basketball was canceled um, and the world was starting to to shut down. Um, I woke up a few days later with this sense of urgency that I needed to, to, to create some sort of a training for churches to help them navigate what's coming. Uh, we called it the Quarantine Church. Hundreds of people signed up for it, watched it, was interacted with us. Um, and we talked through something new that's happening, some innovation, some change to go from large service to small interactive one another in church activity. Um, and, you know, What I felt like uh, through that and subsequent times was people were not looking for change for the church. They were looking to figure out how to use technology so that they could get their message to their people. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was was kind of disheartening after a while. Um, It felt like, hey, there's some momentum, something's happening. And then it was disheartening because they didn't want to accept innovation and change, they just wanted to figure out this technology. Um, And so I think some of the people actually did innovate. Um, There are some churches that are now, um, you know, very successful in the midst of COVID, because they've found a way to to integrate authentic community within whatever service they have. You know, the New Testament has About 60 one another commands. Like, we have to be in community. We have to love one another in the midst of it. And, you know, just bringing something online, we have a community crisis. And so, I don't, not just we have an innovation crisis, I think we have a crisis of authentic community and people are especially in America, struggling, especially with mental health issues, with disconnection, with not feeling connected to the church. Um, How are churches, mission agencies, able to to move in that direction and connect community together?
1: Well, uh, you know, first of all, I would, again, I just, I so resonate with that. I'd say that hospitality is the killer app for the gospel. Hmm. And we need to figure out how to be in the homes of the people around us yeah, and how to invite them into our homes, because that's where uh, real life on life ministry is going to happen. And that's where the gospel has uh, opportunity to fall on the right kind of soil. Yep. And there's no doubt that COVID has created greater levels of isolation. It's a paradox that Hmm. technology can connect us. Yep as never before while at the same time producing a, a sense or a feeling of isolation. Yeah. Because we're not with real people. But you know I would just I would encourage churches to really think about what they could do to get their people to open up their homes mm. in ways that have they've never done before because that really is the opportunity of the the post COVID era.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's so, so key. I mean, living in the Middle East, I mean, hospitality is one of uh, the highest values of Arabs. And so being in people's homes all the time, having people in our home all the time and then coming back to America. And I was like, nobody's inviting us over to their home. Like we're doing a lot of inviting, but nobody is is doing it. You know, even this last weekend, we had a, a community barbecue, a neighborhood barbecue in our front yard. We we invited, I don't know, in a two block radius, we invited like 45 houses, households, Um, only three showed up. Um, And I think that's uh, that's telling of of our culture in America as well and how countercultural hospitality is. And, you know, I live in I live in Kansas City um, and it's supposed to be a hospitable place and connection with other people. And it's a lot more than when I grew up in the Northwest. Um, you know, are there any, any ways that you have found uh, that we can actually be more inviting to get people to, to show up for, into our homes? Well,
1: you know, for uh, about a decade, we tried to do house church. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I lived just outside of Orlando and we were part of a house church network for quite a while. And part of, part of our reason really was this hospitality idea. How yeah. can we get um, on a regular basis, both believers and non-believers in our home, and how can we be in the homes of others? And, um, you know, I would just say that what you just described, um, yeah. that has a lot of power. Now, it may not, the first time you go out the door, you may only get three of 45. Yeah. But when those neighbors are driving by and seeing everybody hanging out, they're saying to themselves, oh, yeah, they're doing that thing today. The second time you do it, you may get seven or eight. Yeah. And you're basically normalizing the idea that, hey, we hang out together and it's okay for us to hang out together. Yeah. We had neighbors. Uh, now, we've moved since this story happened, but we we had neighbors across the street from us. They would drive in, shut their garage door. We basically never saw them. Yep. And so we just decided, let's invite him over for dinner. And so my wife went over, knocked on the door, and the husband answered the door. And my wife said, hey, we'd like to have you guys over for dinner next weekend. And Mm -hmm. he literally responded with, in your house? (laughs) And she said, yeah, in in our house. (laughs) And he said, I don't think we could do that. Wow. And so there is something, and and by the way, (laughs) I won't say what ethnic group they were from, but they were not. Uh, White bred Americans, yeah. so maybe there was something going on there. I don't know. Mm. Uh, you know, I think a lot of cultures around the world say that they have a hospitality mindset. Yeah, but when when it happens in you know our in our country, it just really doesn't seem to translate well.
3: Mm.
1: <laughs> there, there are so many opportunities to extend hospitality. Yeah. Okay, here's an example from the book. When Germany was being overrun with refugees Mm -hmm. a few years ago, a couple of people saw that many Germans had excess space in their homes. Mm -hmm. The German government was struggling with where to put all these refugees. And so a small team was pulled together. They created an app that lets you say on the app, hey, I've got two bedrooms. They're available for six weeks for a family of four. Or a family of two, or whatever wow. it was. Yeah, they placed thousands of people into the homes of ordinary German citizens. Wow, that were helping out with that refugee stream. Now, it wasn't done in the name of Christ. It wasn't done yeah. to spread the gospel. And it, I almost felt like you know we should be ashamed of ourselves that we didn't think of that idea exactly and implement that idea to help out. The refugee stream that was flowing into our country as we've yep. gone through various uh immigrant and refugee cycles as well yeah so you know this is an area that's ripe for innovation
2: yeah
0: yeah that's good you know one of the things i, I was thinking you know as you started to become your president of missio nexus and working with different uh, mission agencies mission leaders in the church and you know how does uh, hearing different perspectives and different voices from multiple agencies help uh, create new change innovation that we need and on the flip side, is it almost dangerous is it dangerous for us to be in a siloed thinking world where we're an echo chamber
1: yeah well those are those are both great questions I would say that, if you think about what most Missio Nexus members are doing, mm-hmm. they're actually trying to solve many of the same problems. Yeah. You know, how do we communicate the gospel effectively? How do we attract capital to our ministry so we can afford to do the ministries we're doing? How do we staff appropriately? How do we recruit, mobilize, and get, you know, get people on the field? So there's great opportunity there for uh, ideas to be shared with each other, yeah. and I would see no reason why any organization that is seeking to impact globally, uh, why they wouldn't want to be in the room with others trying to solve similar problems with different perspectives and backgrounds. Now, at the same time, um, if you look at innovation in industry, they often look outside of their own industry Hmm. for the best innovation ideas. There's a friend that I have that runs an innovation lab and he was interviewing the director of another innovation lab that works for a hospital system. Yeah. In the course, of that conversation, that hospital uh, innovation lab director said, we actually don't think that the best breakthroughs in medicine are going to come from the healthcare industry. Hmm. And so they cross pollinate uh, from other industries into their lab so they can understand those kind of thought process processes and whatnot that stand outside yeah. of the healthcare field. So This to me is another one of those both and propositions. Mm -hmm. We should be pressing in to learn as much as we can from our peers while at the same time inviting lots and lots of input to Mm -hmm. come from the outside in.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. Um, you know, I've I've been doing some work with uh Alan Hirsch and his uh 5Q organization doing APEST Fivefold typology from Ephesians 4. Um, one of the things that we really like to talk about is having you know, these different perspectives: these apes perspective, the apostolic, the prophetic, the evangelistic, the shepherding, and teaching, and using those different perspectives to tackle a problem or a challenge, um, so that we don't just get a, a cloning culture or a siloed culture. Um, what's the you know what have you seen as the value of systems thinking? over silo thinking
1: well first of all i would just say that um large-scale problems are almost always solved through mass collaboration Mm -hmm. and the reason why mass collaboration is necessary is because once you start collaborating on a large scale you have the ability to affect systematic change yeah um, in the book, I use the term Ecleo system to talk about the entire church, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about, you know, Bible colleges and seminaries, or we're talking about the local church down on the corner, denominational structures, agencies, whatever, yeah. they're all part of the Ecleo system. Yep. And if there's not health in that whole system, mm. then the whole system suffers.
2: Yeah.
1: And so, you know, one of the I'd say one of the things that's important for us to realize, let's say we're in a mission agency and we're recruiting missionaries. Well, we're dependent on local churches to produce healthy disciples. Yep. If we're going to recruit them for the global great commission. yeah. So we cannot have a short, uh, you know, limited view of what our contribution needs to be and just scoop up these mature disciples at the end of some process, (laughs) yeah um you can think about it like an ecosystem. A wolf is a keystone predator that's very dependent on health all the way down through that system, yeah, so that the predator has food to eat, yeah um in the same way we need to be we need to have some big large scale thinking about the health of the ecosystem. system mm. if we each individually are gonna succeed in the more narrow mission that God has called us to address,
2: yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned that there's a great video on the wolves being introduced into Yellowstone National Park after 70 years and what happened to the you know, the entire ecosystem and the rivers. And, and they were able to create some more health and, and growth that um, conflict or different perspectives actually produces generative change. Um, yeah. So the conflict of the predator uh, in the midst of that ecosystem, produced a generative change that was healthy for the whole. Um, yeah. You know, what are what are some ways that we could introduce healthy conflict um, as we're trying to solve problems?
1: Well, one of the big theories uh, in the whole leadership world is about organizational culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The idea, I mean, this is good to great one-on-one. The yeah. idea that leaders set the culture... And then the organization performs because the culture is set up in a way that encourages success. Yep. When it comes to conflict, um, healthy, good, appropriate conflict is a key key uh, idea for creating the best ideas and uh, products, services, mm-hmm. etc. All too often, leaders see themselves as needing to manage that conflict away. Yeah, uh, but really, the, I, I would say that it's incumbent on leaders to create safety in cultures mm. such that teams can perform in spite of conflict and, in fact, a benefit from conflict. Yeah, and a lot of the major business writers have observed this and written about this. You know, you read something like uh, things by Lencioni, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Having good, healthy conflict over the right issues. Yep. It's very important. It's got to be over the right issues Um, that does lead to breakthroughs. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's good. So important. How many, you know, as you're you've been working with uh, some mission leaders and other leaders uh, through Missio Nexus. Um, You know, one of the things that I have noticed recently, just just a few people that they're actually married uh, the leader is married more to the ministry than to, uh, his wife. Um, have you seen any good, healthy, um, yeah, healthy marriages to in the family and the family system when you're working with leaders? Um, and what's the importance of, of the family, the home life, um, when you're leading ministry?
1: Wow, that's a whole, <laughs> I know it's a whole different episode of three right there. Um, I guess, you know, one observation I would make is uh, effective leaders. Now, this is anecdotal. I don't have survey research yeah. to back this up, but some of the most effective ministry leaders that I know have had the most uh, difficult spiritual attacks launched against their families. Hmm. And, um, you know, certainly, I mean, I, I'm thinking of a couple of situations, uh, right now, yeah. including, including my own, uh, just struggles that my own kids have had, mm. I would just yeah. say that if you're going to be making, uh, an impact for the kingdom, uh, there's going to be spiritual pushback mm. and you need to be prepped and ready for that to happen. Yeah. Um, uh, now that said, we just hosted a, a marriage CEO uh, event here a couple months ago, and what was encouraging to me in that room was just how many long-standing, healthy uh, marriage relationships uh, were in that room. Yeah. Even so, <laughs> they signed up and came to a marriage retreat. Yep. And so, uh, obviously, that's an important um, idea for longevity in leadership, and I think uh, it's it is an important concept.
2: Yeah. I th-
0: I mean, more and more I I don't know. I'm just seeing people that are, are really I don't know, they're just married to the ministry and it's just uh it been sad. I mean, I just heard about you know, a, so, a long term ministry leader getting a divorce um last night. So this is just on my mind, top of my top of my mind at the moment.
1: So a book that I love that talks to that, it's called The CEO Next Door. Yeah. And in that book, they have a section that talks about, they call it identity theft. Hmm. And what they're referring to is the fact that over time, the ministry becomes your identity. Yeah. Instead of a myriad of other things that are better
2: to have as an identity.
1: And so I do think leaders have got to watch out for identity theft Hmm. so that they don't substitute in uh, the the ministries, the ministry for um, healthy, Relationships at home and with others, hobbies, all that kind of. You can see I got yeah. some hobbies. I got you guitars do. on the wall. When I yeah. hobbies to me are a definite coping mechanism uh, that makes uh, leadership better.
0: Yeah, I I remember. I think I was on a CEO retreat uh, a couple of years ago, maybe two three years ago, with Missio Nexus, and you you mentioned this, the CEO next door, and you mentioned the identity theft uh, issue, and you know it actually helped... Do some self me do some self assessment of hey where is my identity where is my identity formed who am I Um, and you know it's been you know two three years of of a gradual work of doing a lot of self uh, revealing and self assessment of trying to find who I am that and you know I think today I'm a lot less attached to. Uh, my ministry identity than I am in other identity. And so thank you for mentioning that it's actually helped me in the last two or three years to to walk through that. Can you finish with this uh, innovation crisis, just maybe uh, some three or four principles uh, that we can take and use to create some innovation? So
1: probably the easiest thing for me to do is just uh, talk about one of the chapters has a section that has what I call an innovation taxonomy in it. Mm -hmm. And I got this idea. There's a book out there actually called the innovation taxonomy. And I've adapted that for ministry leaders. And the idea is that there are certain areas of ministry that are very ripe for us to consider innovation. in. I'm going to give you one example. Yeah. Ministry identity. And in the book, I give the example of the Association for Gospel Rescue Missions.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, they're an association like Missio Nexus. Every, yeah. you know, every city has these gospel rescue missions. You've seen them. The building says Jesus save on the outside, yeah. saves on the outside, et cetera. Well, they began to think about their identity in the communities in which they were working. And they decided to make a change. They renamed themselves City Gate Network. So CityGate Network came to the conclusion that by calling themselves the Association for Gospel Rescue Missions, they were cutting out potential audiences for their services. Hmm. So they rebranded, they re-identified themselves, and they began talking about the myriad of social services that were available in the city because of their ministry. And so in doing so, all of a sudden, the local municipalities, the city governments began to say, well, hey. Is this something Citygate Network could help us solve in our community? Mm. Wow And their ministry blossomed and they were able to work in many uh, arenas that beforehand they were not allowed to work in. And so mm. just that one area of identity of your ministry yeah. and how it comes across in the community that you're in, that's an area ripe for innovation and there's eight other areas in that chapter that will give you some food for thought about how you might consider innovating.
0: It's good. So go read the book. You got to read the book now to get those uh, other areas. Um, there's a couple questions I like to ask at the end. Uh, one of them is if you could go back um, and give advice to your 21 year old self, what would yeah. you say to your 21 year old self?
1: Well, besides buy Apple stock, um, I know
0: I would say that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Um, I think for me. I've always, you know, I've always loved every role. I when I like, I, I would love to be a computer consultant again. I mm. love doing that. Yeah, I would love to be a field missionary again. I love doing that. Mm. Um, I think, you know, I think I don't have. A, I'm not a person that lives with a lot of regrets, so I've always struggle answering that question. Mm. Um, other than to say, you know, I would probably try to enter into ministry more aggressively, uh, Hmm. younger than I did. I really didn't get going until I was 25, 26, 27. Yeah. Yeah, I probably would've jumped in a little bit earlier. Hmm.
0: That's good. Uh, Yeah, anything uh, that you've been reading or watching that you could recommend?
1: Oh, for sure. I love to do a lot of reading. First of all, there's this book, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I just got done reading and reviewing a book by a guy named Dave Kinneman called Noise. Mm-hmm. And the book is about how bias seeps into our decision-making processes. Mm. Now, this is not good. an easy read. No. It is not the Cliff Notes version of how uh, noise influences our decisions. Yeah. But particularly for senior leaders, it's a good book to be reflective about As you make decisions, particularly if there's a lot of ambiguity um, in the decision making that you're trying to conduct.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Anything else?
1: Well, the Book of Mark, I've been reading through that. That's been really uh, helpful and enjoyable. In terms of watching... um, Boy, my biggest my biggest uh, contribution in the watching arena and you, and you're probably hearing this all over the place is we've been watching the Chosen series.
2: Yeah, it's good,
0: isn't it?
1: And it is good. It, you know, <laughs> it really makes you reflect on some of the biases that maybe are sitting in your brain as you think yep. about who the person of Christ is, um, etc. We found it to be you know, a a pretty rich uh, and challenging
0: why. Well, Ted, uh, thank you so much. Um, I'm really, you know, as I've been reading The Innovation Crisis, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, it's given me a lot of uh, food for thoughts. And so I just uh, hope other people will go out and read it as well. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, It was really a privilege to talk to you today.
1: Thanks for having me and Lord bless, Joshua. All
0: right. Thanks, Ted.